Well, good morning, Providence Church. Uh, my name is Caleb. I'm the pastor of student ministries here. And even though I, I can't see your faces, I'm happy to be worshiping with you uh, this morning. Uh, a quick announcement for the men. Uh, the men's ministry would like to invite you to join them for breakfast on Saturday, August 15th from 8 to 9.30. Uh, it'll be here at the church, outside under the tent, rain or shine. And so if you're interested in participating, you can sign up using a, a link that'll be in your inbox tomorrow. Uh, and if you have any questions, you can get in contact with Pastor Joe. Um, in these uh, unprecedented and, and stressful times, it's, it's important to be able to process uh, what's been going on. And we'd like to make you aware that Fieldstone Counseling, one of our uh, strategic partners, is here to help with that. Uh, Fieldstone Counseling offers quality uh, biblical counseling for all situations. And if that's something you're interested in pursuing, uh, please contact Pastor Ian for guidance on how to get started. And we'd also like to remind you that every Monday morning, our staff gathers together to pray. And we would love the privilege of lifting up your requests to the Lord. And so if you have uh, prayer requests that you'd like to share with the staff, you can do so by emailing Lisa Baraski. Well, today is the day that the Lord has made. So let us rejoice and be glad in it. Pastor Ian. Church, good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that it was your will to not leave man in his state of um, enmity before you, desolation, but Lord, you, out of your love, sent your son, the Lord Jesus, the Christ, the one who is recognized throughout scripture as both the son of God and the son of man, as well as the lamb of God who gave himself for us sacrificially. In complete substitution for us. We thank you, Lord, for him. We thank you for his spirit who now abides in those who you have purchased for yourself. We thank you that we have this gift of his presence, he who is guiding us and directing us to make much of Jesus and to display and declare who you are. So, Lord, help us in this time of rest that we can come and worship you pray, Lord, that we would do so in spirit and in truth, and that it would embolden us to trust you in new ways, to serve you gladly, and to worship and adore you from here on out. And so, Lord, um, we use the gospel that, that you have given us through Christ to praise you, and we thank you that your mercy is more than all of our sins. We praise you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every more. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their song. Thrown out to a sea without bottom or shore. 
What weight as we constantly roam What father so tender is calling our soul He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more Praise the Lord, His mercy is more of kindness he lavished on us his blood was the payment his life was the cause we stood beneath the dead we could never afford our sins they are made his mercy is more so praise the Praise the Lord that we have passages such as Romans 3 that we can look at together and remember the condition of our hearts um, before Christ. And if we're honest, as we are in Christ, we still wrestle, we struggle day in, day out. And so Romans 3, Paul gives us a reminder of, of the condition of where we were and, and what we were before God. And then the assurance that we have that God is our righteousness. He is our caretaker. He is the one who has saved us through his son. And so let's look to Romans 3, some verses to remember this together. We'll recite it as a church as we do. So we'll start in verse 10, where Paul writes, All are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 22, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We have much reason to celebrate together with our singing. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mountain now poured, filled with the blood of the Lamb was spilled. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and Within grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sins. Sin and despair like the sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold. Points to the refuge of mighty cross. Grace, 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 God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow you may be to all grace, 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 good grace that will pardon and cleanse with Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see His face. Will you this moment is grace receive? Grace, grace, good. 
My name is Randy Nichol. I'm one of the elders here at Providence. And uh, will you join me this morning in prayer? Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your grace. Lord, it's not anything that we have done, but it is because of your mercy and your love. And Lord, we this time recognize that um, it is your grace and grace alone that... Um, has saved us. Lord, we pray that, again, that this would be a lighthouse that spreads that message to people throughout this area, that, Lord, um, the story of what you have done for us and are doing in and through us, Father. Lord, I, I thank you that you are true and right and pure and good, and you are full of love. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people that know you more and more. And that, Lord, you would help us to challenge each other and to care for each other and to forgive each other. And that we would be people that are full of grace. Lord, we pray today for the Shaw family and their vacation. We ask that you would watch over them, that you would give them a very rested time, a time to just be together and um, to come back refreshed, Lord. And we commit them to you. Thank you for them. Lord, this morning, we um, think of our missionaries in Central Asia. And Lord, the, they've had an opportunity to meet so many needs in this time with this COVID-19 virus that they are now on a, a road trip. And Lord, we pray you would protect them on this trip. We pray that you would give them opportunities to share we thank you that they are having an opportunity to do some baptisms and to meet some physical needs by providing food and by sharing your love. And so we commit to them to you and pray for their protection and that you would use them to your glory. Lord, I pray for Clarence and Laura Watkins today and uh, with the loss of Clarence's mother. And I pray that you would be with them. May they sense your presence and your peace in their lives. We pray for any that are grieving today, Lord, and are missing loved ones. We pray for them today. Lord, we pray for our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers. Just ask that you would uh, give us opportunities and use us in their lives. And Lord, we ask that you would bless this time of worship, that you would be pleased and that you would smile upon each part of it, that you would be glorified. In your son's name, amen. If you could, if you would stand with me today, we are going to continue in the book of Luke. Uh, we stand as a way to honor God's word. Um, Caleb is going to be sharing with us today 
We're going to be looking at Luke 5, 27 to 39, and I'm going to be reading out of the ESV translation. Luke 5, 27. And after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, who do you eat and drink with tax? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so did the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new one, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts a new wine into an old wineskin. If he does, a new wine will burst, and the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning again. Uh, be before we engage God's word together, uh, would you pray with me? Father, we come before you now in desperate need of you. We long for your presence and we ask that you would be among your people. Would you speak to us through your word? Would you use it in mighty ways in our lives? We ask that you would shape us into the kingdom people that you've called us to be. And Father, I ask that you would use me to that end. May the words that are about to flow from my mouth, born out of the meditations of my heart, be pleasing in your sight our rock and our redeemer. Would you glorify yourself among us? And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Back in 2015, students from 110 college campuses banded together to participate in the Million Student March, which was a protest against high tuition costs and the rising student debt. Uh, their mission was to see the cancellation of all student debt, uh, a free college education, and a minimum wage of $15 an hour for college students. And that sounds great, but I will never forget uh, an interview that Neil Cavuto from Fox Business did with one of the organizers of that march, where he basically asked the same question over and over again. So uh, how are you going to do this? How are you going to pay for all of this? And every proposal she presented to accomplish their mission was a non-starter to the point it became comical. You see, having a good mission is not enough. You also need a good strategy for executing that mission. 
A few weeks back, we were introduced to the mission of Jesus, and it sounds great. Uh, in Luke 4, 18 and 19, he tells us that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the mission Jesus is setting out to accomplish. But the question is, how's he going to execute it? What's Jesus' strategy for accomplishing this mission? And this morning, Jesus is going to demonstrate what his plan is, and it shocks the religious leaders of his day. And it just might shock you as well. So let's see what Luke has to show us in Luke 5, once again starting in verse 27. After Jesus had healed the paralytic man who was lowered down from the roof, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Now, as far as I know, no one likes paying taxes. In fact, a 2020 Wallet Hub survey revealed that people would rather name their child taxes than pay them. But they have to be paid, and so we transfer our disdain for paying taxes onto the people who collect them. I know very few people who look fondly on the IRS and the people who work there, but it was much worse back then. Uh, see, the tax collectors were the social scourge of Jesus' day. They were straight-up mobsters, extorting people for their tax money and a little extra for themselves. They were seen as enemies of Israel because they were in cahoots with their Roman overlords. And because they regularly interacted with Gentiles, they were excluded from so many religious rituals that they might as well have been unclean. And Jesus comes to one such tax collector named Levi. Now, Levi is not a big shot in the tax world like Zacchaeus. He's a lower-level guy who's still manning a tax booth. And Jesus says to him, follow me. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. Now, this selection by Jesus would have been absolutely shocking. But, but it does fit with his mission because Levi was poor. Now, for us, poor refers to someone's financial state, but in Hebrew culture, it meant to be marginalized and outcast. And so even though Levi would be financially rich, he was still poor. He was an outsider, an outcast. And this is the exact type of person that Jesus came for. And so he proclaims the good news to Levi and invites him to follow him. And Levi does so immediately. He quits his job and follows Jesus. And our text tells us that the first thing that Levi does is he throws a party. Verse 29 tells us that Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Levi apparently wanted his friends to hear the good news that Jesus was proclaiming. So he invites them to a feast in Jesus' honor. And these friends were not the company a self-respecting Jew would have kept. But then again, neither was Levi. Uh, Levi found friends among the deplorables of society because no one else would befriend a tax collector. But Jesus had absolutely no problem being with them, which caused a problem. 
Verse 30, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, this exchange probably happened the day after because, as they just said, no self-respecting Pharisee would be at a party thrown by a tax collector. But notice how they go about lobbying their complaint. They grumble at Jesus' disciples. Their issue is really with Jesus, but they apply pressure to the disciples who are guilty by association. Well, Jesus steps in in verse 31 and answers them. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And here is where we find the mission strategy of Jesus. He enters into the lives of sinners to call them to repentance. And to understand this analogy of a doctor and the sick, we have to make sure that we don't mislabel these two types of people. At first glance, we'd want to say that there are sick people and those who are well, the ones that need a physician and the ones who don't. But that's a false dichotomy. Scripture is very clear. All have sinned, all are sick, therefore all are in need of a physician. So if everyone's sick, then we have two different types of sick people here. The ones that know they are sick, and the ones that don't. I once heard a, a fictional story about a man who was convinced that he was dead. And his wife and family tried everything to convince him, but to no avail. Finally, they, uh, they asked this, uh, this dead man to go see a doctor. And he acquiesces, he goes, and the doctor tries to convince him. Uh, once again, to no avail. Finally, he asked the man, do dead men bleed? And the dead man said to him, no, of course not. That would be ridiculous. And so the doctor pricked the man's arm, and as blood began to trickle out, the, the dead man exclaimed, well, what do you know? I guess dead men do bleed. See, see, the Pharisees, like all of us, are, are sick, and, and yet because of their external actions, their religiosity they believe that they are well, that they are righteous. And the sad fact of the matter is Jesus can't help them if they don't think they need it. And so Jesus spends his time with the, the sick, sinners who know that they are alienated from God and are willing to repent. And I want us to note the centrifugal nature of Jesus' strategy Jesus does not stand off waiting for the sick and sinners to come to him, though they certainly do that. Jesus prioritizes going to them and being in their midst, even if it damages some people's perception of him. And this is a, a major departure from how the nation of Israel had been operating up to this point. It was known from the birth of the nation that through them all nations would be blessed. But it was a little fuzzy how the other nations were to enter into that blessing. Now, that is until Mount Sinai. There the Israelites received the law that would set them apart from the surrounding peoples. Their conduct was to reflect God's character and their relationship with him was supposed to draw in the nations. And we can see how different this is from what Jesus was doing. Rather than acting centrifugally, going out to the nations... Israel was acting centripetally, calling the nations to join the covenant community and adopt the God-given standards of the nation. Except there wasn't a whole lot of calling 
going on. What eventually happened was it became like a national club that if you wanted to reap the benefits of being in a relationship with Yahweh, you had to perform all the rituals and maintain your personal purity. And like any elite club, those inside of it often looked down upon those who weren't, and they weren't in any hurry to add new members. And so they are looking at Jesus, a rabbi, someone who would be in the club, and yet he's not obeying any of the rules of the club. And so they remind Jesus of how things are supposed to be done in verse 33. They say to him, Well, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. See, fasting is, uh, for religious reasons, is a foreign concept to most of us, but it was actually a rather common thing in Jesus' day. In fact, a, a zealous Jew would fast twice a week, and the goal was always the same, to, to get God to answer and intervene. But by this time, the Pharisees had also begun to use fasting as a public demonstration that they were in the Covenant Community Club. And now you have Jesus and his disciples doing neither of these things, at least the way the Pharisees thought they should be done. And they wanted to know why. And Jesus responds in verse 34, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Uh, some of you know that my wife and I dated long distance, and the, the times that we were able to be together were, were cherished. But there were a few times where I would get all sad and mopey that one of us was leaving before they had actually left. Uh, and M, in all of her kindness, would point out how ridiculous that was uh, because we still had time together and we should enjoy it rather than sulking around. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus isn't condemning fasting. He actually anticipates a time when his followers will fast and, and leaves them instructions on how to do so in Matthew 6. His point is that fasting serves no purpose when he's present. There's no point in asking God to intervene when he has done so in Jesus. The thing that they have been longing for has come. But what had come wasn't what they had envisioned. Jesus and his mission strategy were, were far different from the Pharisees' strategy. And Jesus goes so far to point out that they are incompatible. He tells four short parables at the end of our text this morning, starting in verse 36. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will, will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put in fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Now, the first three parables are saying the same basic thing. New, old, they don't mix well, and it's, it's rather absurd to try. So slow down for a second and put yourself in the first scenario. You have a, an old blue shirt with a massive hole in it. And so you go to Kohl's and you buy a brand new shirt. You get home, you take off the tags, and you cut a hole in the new shirt to, to fix the old one. And how, how silly is that? Not only do you destroy a perfectly good new shirt, 
but you now have an old shirt with a mismatched patch. No one would do that. Likewise, no one would pour new wine into an old wineskin. Now, this one's a little tougher for us because we don't store beverages the same way. But basically, imagine a goat with no legs, no head, and no hair, and you have a wineskin. And over time, the, the skin would become brittle. And so if you have an old, brittle wineskin and you poured new wine into it, it would expand and it would cause the skin to burst, destroying the container and losing all the wine inside. Once again, something that no one in Jesus' day would do. Trying to combine the old mission strategy and the new is impossible. But one of these parables is not like the others. And, and frankly, the fourth one seems like it doesn't belong other than the fact it too talks about wine. But here Jesus is shifting gears from looking at the different mission strategies and their incompatibility to the people who participate in them. He basically is saying that those who commit to the way things were are oftentimes unwilling to abandon them for new things, even if those things are better or the old ways are ineffective. And here's the great irony of this passage. Luke tells us in the beginning of his gospel that he is writing an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, how Jesus is the, the continuation and the surprising conclusion of the story of God in Israel. But Jesus's fulfillment of God's mission is actually a departure from how Israel had done things. Gone is the old strategy, and comes the new. And Luke wants us to understand that Jesus accomplished his God-given mission by going to sinners and bringing the kingdom to them. And it's important that we see that God doesn't wait for us to reach a certain level of health before he intervenes. Jesus doesn't say to Levi or his, his party guest, get some of your sin, get some of your rebellious life in order, and then we'll talk. No, he comes and he fellowships with him and calls him to repentance. And there's a reason for that. It's because we're dead. Ephesians 2 tells us that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were all dead, which means that, that we're incapable of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and somehow making ourselves acceptable to God. You know why? Because dead people do nothing. They can't do anything. They can't contribute to their situation. They are stuck. And so the centripetal strategy of calling people up to God's level of holiness wouldn't have worked. Something different had to be done. And the good news is something was done. Ephesians 2 continues on in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God, in his great love, intervened by sending Jesus to make us alive. And he did that by dealing with our problem. Jesus entered into the world of sinners and lived a perfect sinless life among them so that his substitutionary death 
might, be, might heal us and, and, and make us righteous. And please don't miss what caused God to intervene. It wasn't our good efforts or personal piety. We are still dead in our trespasses when God intervenes. It's only by God's grace that we are saved and able to enter into the year of the Lord's favor. This is how Jesus executed his mission. The set-apart one entered into the lives of sinful people to bring the kingdom of God to them. And the reason this is so important to Luke is because we are to continue carrying out Jesus' mission. See, we have the amazing responsibility of declaring the good news to the poor and inviting people to enter into the Jubilee year as Jesus did. But as the, the Million Student March showed us, having the mission isn't enough. We also need to have the correct strategy for accomplishing it. And Luke seems to be concerned that Jesus' followers, like the Pharisees, will remain in a holy huddle, waiting for people to try and join the club. Uh, Casting Crowns, a, a Christian band, released a song way back in 2002, which, fun fact, is 18 years ago, and that made me feel very old when I realized it. Uh, but, but they released a song called, If We Are the Body. Uh, and the chorus goes like this. If we are the body, why aren't his arms reaching? Why aren't his hands healing? Why aren't his words teaching? If, if we're the body, why aren't his feet going? Why, why is his love not showing them that there is a way? That Jesus is the way. And the songwriter's answer is that we are expecting people to reach up to our standard and will shun them until they do. Uh, that's uh, something my wife uh, found out uh, very personally when she was in high school. Uh, my wife and a friend had to conduct a social experiment, and M had just cut her hair six, eight inches or so, and they decided to dress her up in gothic apparel and to go to her friend's youth group by herself. You can imagine what happened next. No one would talk to her, even though she tried to engage with them. She was left in a corner alone, cut off from several people she knew because she didn't meet their standards. And I fear that practice is not isolated to that one youth group. I fear that much like the Pharisees, we have found our significance in our separation from the world. That, that functionally, we act like the reason that we are acceptable to God is because of our personal piety. And when we believe that, we aren't willing to risk people's perception by going to those who don't meet the status quo. But, but please hear me. Your works post-salvation don't make you acceptable. Jesus' death wasn't an initial salvation vaccine, and our good lifestyle is a necessary booster. We were made completely acceptable to God through Jesus while we were dead in our sins. Yes, we are to live differently than the world, but we are to live differently in the world. We are to seek out those separated from God and extend them compassion and grace as we invite them into his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, we are the body. So let's go show them that there is a way, that Jesus is the way. Let's pray. 
Father, we praise you and we thank you that you didn't wait for us to ascend to your level, but that you sent Jesus to intervene on our behalf. We praise you that while we were still sinners, your great love sent Christ to die for us, your enemies. Father, would you forgive us as we so frequently adopt the mission strategy of the Pharisees? And we become more concerned with our personal piety and people's opinion than carrying out your mission. Would you forgive us? And Father, would you help us to grasp your grace that intervened even while we were dead in our sins? And would you empower us by the Holy Spirit to take the good news to those who need you? And Father, would you uh, be pleased as we continue to worship your name? And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. Come and welcome God's free bounty, glorified. True belief is true repentance. Every grace that brings you nigh. I will rise and go.
Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. Have a great week.